Hello and welcome to Handbags and Gladrags, a podcast looking at gender, politics and pop culture. With me, Rian E. Jones. And me, Ellie Davis. Today we're talking about women and the city. We decided to do a show on this subject after various conversations we'd been having over lockdown about what we're missing about city life. This was partly about the specifics of the particular cities we live in, London and Belfast, and what it is about our daily life in these places, that the last year has deprived us of. But we also wanted to explore what is important to us about urban space generally, as women, specifically as single women in both our cases, women in our 40s, women who are not homeowners. We're in a position of privilege to varying degrees, but also with the retreat into domestic space that lockdown has forced on us all, we're more aware of our exclusion from certain relationships and living arrangements, and more aware of our dependence on certain aspects of public life in the cities in which we live. So we wanted to have a conversation about these aspects of city life more broadly and how these gendered considerations intersect with other forces such as class and race. Joining us to discuss all this, we have Emma Jackson. Emma is a senior lecturer in sociology at Goldsmiths University of London. Her research, writing and teaching are in the field of urban sociology and she's particularly interested in how people practice belonging and how this intersects with processes of urban change and forms of inequality. Thank you for joining us, Emma. Oh, very happy to be here. Thanks, Rian. Thanks, Emma. So the mainstream writing about the city is dominated by certain types of voices, namely those of white, reasonably well-off, able-bodied men, seems indisputable. Some of this can be traced back to the figure of the flaneur, who was a crucial figure in the development of thinking about the modern Western city. For the French poet Charles Baudelaire, the flaneur embodied a new and radical way of inhabiting the streets of 19th century Paris in the context of rapid industrialization. The the flaneur wandered through, watched, but also participated with the city and for Baudelaire was a vital creative expression of urban life. While the flaneur is of course a problematic figure in lots of ways, more on this later, he does point towards how crucial movement around the city is to our relationship with it. And it's an acknowledgement of the enjoyment and sustenance to be gained from this pastime. In her Ode to the Joys of Solitary Urban Walking, Rebecca Solnit talks of the quote, basking in solitude that such walking involves. She writes, Quote, one is alone because the world is made up of strangers and to be a stranger surrounded by strangers, to walk along silently bearing one's secrets and imagining those of the people one passes is among the starkest of luxuries. And that quote feels particularly poignant uh, at a time when we've been deprived of such luxury. But such thrills of anonymity, of course, don't come from nowhere. And to experience them, you need resources. You need a place to live, money, a community, mental and physical well-being, a sense of confidence and of personal safety. 
These are things it seems still too rarely acknowledged by many mainstream writers about the city who walk, observe and ponder the streets at all times of the day without thinking very much about their position there and the privilege that allows them to do this. The figure of, figure of the flaneur has been reclaimed by many women writers th through the figure of the flaneurs, most notably by Lauren Elkin in her book of that name. There remain questions about privilege, however, in this solitary wanderer. These questions about gendered entitlement to the city became more urgent earlier this year in the wake of the kidnapping and murder of Sarah Everard by a police officer as she walked home in South London. This horrific incident of male violence highlighted the ways that state and gendered power shape our relationships with urban space and became a focus for vigils and protests afterwards, which were of course horribly policed. These discussions have thrown up other important questions, which of course have always been there. For example, how migrant women, women of color and trans women are more at risk and how laws make the lives of sex workers in the city more dangerous. So our positions in the cities in which we live are shaped by many different forces. How do we look beyond these traditional mainstream ideas of the city and rethink them to make them safer, more equitable and more joyful places? Uh, so let's talk about some of this. So obviously this is a big, big topic. The city is a big topic. We've talked about some of these things. We've kind of gestured towards some of these things in our introductions. Um, but just to open up with one question, um, what do we think are the limits of current thinking uh, and writing about the city? What are the gaps that need filling in? And yeah, what are some of the kind of the main limits that, that uh, we can see in the way that the city is written and thought about? I think there's some absolutely brilliant thinking and writing about the city that comes from traditions of feminist geography, for example, but I don't think that that kind of writing translates into the mainstream. So, I've, I've, you know, it often stays within the remits of academic work. And so I, th I think while there is some great writing on the city, that kind of non-fiction writing about the city, that when you go and look at the section, um, if you go to a London bookshop anyway and look at the section on London, you'll just see loads of books by... Well, mainly by Ian Sinclair, but also other people writing in that kind of style. Um, so I, I think it's not just about, oh, what are the limits of writing on the city? It's about, OK, which kind of writing on the city um, is made available to the public, is, is, is made mainstream? I agree. I think, um, th yeah, there's, there's a limited mainstream canon uh, which, like like many forms of art and culture, tends to be dominated by middle-aged white men um, who, who also construct the canon. Um, I'm going to draw what might sound like a slightly odd comparison between the way I experienced uh, music and, and rebellion through music as um, a teenager and the way I encountered the this, this city and writing about the city um, and generally being in the city when I was a bit older. Um, so in the same way, I found it hard to negotiate uh, rebel music as a girl because the majority of my role models and, and the people I saw as being exemplars of this music uh, were male. They, they were um, people like Bob Dylan, specifically. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I used to assume if you wanted to rebel through music, if you wanted to be a particular rebel bohemian artist, then you had to be male to do that. And in the same way, um, when I moved to London, and got very into um, like traditions of psychogeography and, and this kind of thing, I assumed, oh, if you want to walk around a city in a politically significant way, you have to be Ian Sinclair or Guy Debord or Will Self. Um, whereas, in fact, there's this whole alternative canon of women who engage with their cities in various ways. Um, just to give one specific example, I recently read um, Terraformed by Joy White, which is about her experience um, of living in Newham in East London. And how gentrification has affected um, like both race and class, but has fundamentally altered the landscape and the way that the community there um, relate to it. So that's a completely different take than something like Ian Sinclair's uh, is it Red, Red Rose or Red Rose Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so they both write about parts of London, but coming from completely different perspectives and giving completely different reads or, or analyses um, of the city so I find that interesting yeah in the style as well because there's whose voice um, gets to cross over but also what kind of accounts are available to people so that psychogeography genre of the unseen person moving moving through a landscape it's normally you know the back roads and the canals and the liminal zones of the city and the walker is kind of detached but you know musing intellectually uh, Joy White's book she is absolutely grounded in the context that she comes from. She writes passionately about it. She cares about it. She has a long relationship with the place she's writing about. And so it's a completely different genre of, of urban writing. So I guess there's what translates to the mainstream and who and which kind of writing about the city is seen as being this... Um, belonging to the canon, you know, speaking about London, which people might think, oh, yeah, Ian Sinclair, you know, that that's the writing about London. And I hope people will also think that about Joy White's work. But I don't see that kind of work being published in the LRB so much. Well, I think there's, quickly, I think there's a real paradox between um, the way that white male writers are able to almost become invisible because they are so default so they can wander around the city and be a very detached observer whereas if you are a young black man for example um, you are almost hyper visible in some ways in terms of surveillance in terms of racist anxiety um, and and that focus so it's harder to be an attached observer um, in that sense that's something that just struck me as well there's there's a paradox between who is who is visible as a, a mainstream producer of this writing and who is visible as a, a subject of, of urban observation, to put it like that. Yeah, and there's something about that kind of invisibility um, at the same time, which kind of gives it in the kind of canonical understanding of writing about the city, but sort of writing generally that kind of gives it the veneer of sort of authority because it's sort of not, you know, it's kind of observing, you know, and somehow there's some idea that, yeah, like, as you said, Rianne, the the default or there's a sort of somehow kind of overall omnipotent kind of perspective that these voices have um and yeah that that invisibility I mean those quotes that I read out at the beginning which are kind of do sort of you know from Virginia Woolf and um Rebecca Solnit they kind of communicate a lot of the excitement of the anonymity of the city but that anonymity is a privilege and it's not it isn't 
available to everyone. Um, and I, this is just something that I kind of have to say, having moved away from London um, and living in a different city now, I've become so aware as well, not, not only of obviously those voices like Ian Sinclair, which kind of dominate city writing, but also that London dominates city writing. Um, and, you know, of course, London, New York, Paris, you know, Paris, there are the sort of three cities, I guess. Would there be other kind of, I guess, maybe San Francisco now? Like there are certain kind of cities which, which come up in these discussions about gentrification and urban space and power. And actually um, living in somewhere like Belfast, which has got an inc- very, you know, conflicted histories, history of colonialism and it's still a colonial city, arguably, um, and there's this history of division and conflict and violence that really, to be a, you can't be a Flanese in Belfast in the way that you can in, in London. I can't, I'm physically stopped from moving around the city and everyone, everyone is to some extent. And this is really something I've thought about a lot during lockdown when public transport hasn't been really accessible or safe you know I haven't felt safe using it so I've walked around a lot and it's a real driver's city Belfast and so the position I have as a woman walking around as someone who doesn't drive has felt quite kind of it has felt different to how it would very different to how it would have felt in London had I been in London I think during this time and I know London has had its own lockdown kind of specific lockdown uh vibes to it you know um, but it's really made me think about how the city can mean so many different things as well. I mean, public transport is interesting because I, when you were saying that, I, I realised one of the things that I'm, I'm almost physically pining for uh, is going on the bus in London. Because um, I view, as someone who just loves buses, and I vastly prefer them to, to the tube, for example. Um, but I, I almost view buses as an extension of walking around the city because the the kind of observation that I do um, from a bus and, and the I guess the consumption of of the city is very similar to what I get from walking around so that's interesting to think about like you don't have to be physically walking in order to feel that you're exploring or um, immersing yourself in the city um, but yeah transport is is interesting and I, I think I find the tube quite a hostile environment sometimes I, I feel much less safe or I have felt much less safe on the tube than I have on a bus or even even walking even if it's like 2am in the morning mm. I, th- there is something that makes me feel quite safe depending on the environment that I'm in and the state of mind that I'm in because it can it can flip back and forth and I can feel endangered or, or unsafe very easily um, but there's, there's also a sense in which I feel extremely safe in London. Yeah, I think there's a, a couple of really interesting things that you've both raised there. I went on the bus for the first time yesterday in months, and it was a very exciting experience, and I got the best seat. Driver's <laughs> <laughs> seat. Yeah, driver's seat. Um, but going back to um, Ali's point about how some cities become emblematic of the city, I think that's really an important um an important thing to think about and why when we think we talk of the city um we might get images of yeah 20th cent- 19th century paris or 20th century new york or london and and why are these the cities that have um that are so well covered in in this sort of genre of literature that we've talked of so i suppose on the one hand there's the the 
there's a kind of city experience that is maybe offered in these kinds of cities that has become enshrined as the city experience, um, which means that they those books on those kinds of cities dominate. Um, and then there's also what will people publish um, and the you know, being able to sell a book to publisher is, oh, it's about London. But also in um, urban geography, there's been a big movement in in decentering mm. those kinds of cities and thinking from the cities of the global south. Yeah. And thinking about, okay, if we start theorising from the cities of the global south, how does that change what we think of as an urban experience? Yeah. Um, so there's that movement. Well, there's been a the sort of right to the city movement has kind of been, you know, it's been sort of important across the globe, really, hasn't it? Those sorts of the sort of neoliberal mm. the battles with the sort of neoliberal city, city or urban developers and gentrification and that, that it feels like there's been some really important arguments coming out of like Mumbai, um, you know, Sao Paulo, yeah. like places like that, like really. Um, yeah, it's important to sort of broaden out those things. Do you have any particular like recommendations of like, writers on that on those sorts of um those places Emma sorry to put you (laughs) (laughs) oh well it depends on what kind of um Abdul Malik Simone writes a lot about um African cities and what happens when um the infrastructure you know we're just talking about there how transport and deeply affects our relationship with the city. What happens when you live somewhere where there's a very unstable infrastructure and people are constantly having to make up for um, holes in the infrastructure? So he's one example of someone who writes very um, poetically as well. Uh There's one recommendation. I might think of of some more while we're talking. I need to think of some women, given that we're talking about women. (laughs) To come up with a a man isn't like the greatest. No, no, No pressure, don't worry. Um, oh, I know. I've got, I've got, I've got a pile of books on my desk, and um, an absolutely brilliant book on some of the things that we'll be talking about today is by Shilpa Fadkar, Samira Khan, and Shilpa Renada, and it's called Why Loiter: Women and Risk on Mumbai Streets, and that's absolutely brilliant. So it's starting with the experience of Mumbai as a city, and they put forward this really powerful argument that the ability to loiter in place is really important so that women are only allowed to be in public space if they have a purpose. So if you're getting somewhere or um, you are going to buy something and what they really argue for is to centre fun in terms of making political claims to space, not to start with safety, um, which has been centred a lot in discussions of the Indian cities and which is really important. And I'm sure we'll get to that. But actually, they argue that claiming the right to the city is more than just about, you know, not wanting to be harassed. It's about claiming the right to hang about and have fun. So they put that at the centre of what they argue for. So that would be my number one cities of the South, um, women in the city recommendation. That sounds great. And I think that kind of links in to some of the conversations that, as Rian said in sort of introduction, that we've been having about what we're missing about the city. And, mm-hmm. and, and this came up in that we, we recorded a program, we recorded a program about the, about the pub as well. And the idea of sort of freedom and agency of, that we have as women in the city, the way that we move around it, it can kind of give us a sort of, yeah. Mm. That, it's, and it, 
it can give us a sense of freedom and autonomy and fun, of course, which is so important. And that's kind of one of the things that we're really missing at the moment, you know, that, that um, because public space is obviously so policed and regulated at the moment. Um, yeah, my mind went completely to the to the pub as well, <laughs> as it often does. Um, but also, I mean, I, I think the idea of centering, yeah, fun and leisure and recreation mm-hmm. is hugely important. Um, I was thinking when I, I was thinking about what do I miss about the city? Part of this is to do with lockdown. Part of it's to do with gentrification, and part of it, I think, is just to do with my changing uh, lifestyle and my changing uh, employment status. But when younger, I mostly worked uh, retail jobs in central London and my my life was very much within the public life of the city um, and I just I had you know rented accommodation which was really just a base um, for for launching myself into this into this wider social cultural and professional life within the city so I used to work in uh, foils which is in the middle of Soho so after finishing a shift we'd all go to a pub usually um, many of us were um, like in bands as well, so we'd occasionally go and see a colleague perform or go to a book launch um, or just sort of eat out or or drink. And I, I just remember feeling the city itself is my home. Yeah. I don't need, I mean, I, I need somewhere to sleep, I guess, um, though it depends on, on the night. But really, yeah, you just, you need a, a domestic base perhaps, but it doesn't function as a space. It's It's simply just... Um, a practical necessity whereas the city is where you get your actual sustenance from your social life and your um, your pleasure I guess um, and that's that's something I, I miss on on many different levels. Yeah I I um, I've been thinking a lot about this as well and I think partly for me it's because I've sort of moved to a new city I moved to Belfast you know when I was 38 and sort of in some sense is kind of starting again, I guess. So the, you know, the public life has been incredibly important to me. Like the, the, there's been a lot of, like a crucial part of my life here has been the, the literary and academic scene. So there's always talks and launches and, you know, readings to go to. And because Belfast is a small city, so it's a, there's a particular dynamic here, but you've, you, you don't have to, go with anyone because you can go and you know that you'll see people that you know and you you know that that's going to happen so there's a kind of comfort to that and that has all gone and I think a lot of I I think I've seen a few people talking about this the sort of layer I think there was an article in the Atlantic or something about the the missing how we will there's a type of friendship which lockdown has deprived us all of and it's the kind of friend you know it's the, the friend who you'd you wouldn't ring up to have a coffee with or whatever but you would just not, you know that you would see them around and I think that kind of relationship and interaction is, is quite is dependent is, is a very kind of um common feature of you know urban life that sort of you know urban activity and and it's something that's kind of yeah that's that we've lost in the last year yeah, I think that's right. And you're talking about Belfast there. It reminds me a lot about, of, I lived in Glasgow for a bit and um, similar sim, similar situation there where within certain scenes, you don't need to really check who's going because you'll know somebody who's there, even after a relatively short amount of time. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really happen. In, well, in London, I guess, in some scenes within the city, it does, but um, it's, it's not quite the same, is it? Mm. But I think... Um, something I was thinking is from the first lockdown onwards, it became really obvious 
what person was being imagined um, as being the citizen of the country um, as the rules were rolled out because it took so long. I mean, it, you will have, I, I live with two other people, so it isn't as harsh for me in a nuclear family nuclear family unit as it is for a single person um but the fact that it took so long for any consideration that single people might need to see some other people that that might be a critical mental health social factor that was just appalling that it took so long and then there were things along along the way where I kept thinking you're not really thinking you're not considering that some people don't have a car you're not considering um, that some people live in blocks of flats, so they have relationships with other people who aren't in their household, but they're not, yeah. not in their building. And, and you know, the, when they brought in that you could go and sit in people's gardens, but they hadn't thought about how some people might have gardens, but you might have to walk through their house to get to the garden. Like, you're like, oh, my goodness, you're only thinking about nuclear families who live in massive houses <laughs> like detached houses where you can go around the sides to the back garden like. but all along I think there's been a certain presumption about how people live which completely um ignores and marginalizes people who live as Ryan um Rianne, you explained you know when you first when you're a bit younger and living in London that kind of way of living where you just you live in a room but really you live out in the city mm. I know lots of people who had that uh, experience me too to some degree the the idea and, and I know people who have been stuck in flat shares and not been able to have access to cafes where they might work where they, they might see people and the the impact on that is just the impact on people who have that kind of relationship with the city is um huge of, of these successive lockdowns yeah there's a, just a huge huge raft of assumptions isn't there about like what it means you know even if you're not single even if you are in a relationship like I know people who are in relationships but don't live with their partners so they so that's been really difficult and their partner might live on the other side of the city so that's you know complicated and of course as a single person yes there's that complete I mean, initially, that for me, there was just that complete sudden deprivation of all human contact, pretty much, which was just, which just felt so. I mean, it was just traumatic, actually. It really was. And and it's a. You'd think they would have thought that through, but then. Maybe not. I mean, they thought nothing through. Look who we're talking about here. Yeah, I know. I know. I stopped myself. (laughs) The issue of. I guess the assumption about access to uh, green space particularly was, was something that just wasn't thought about at all. So it was not only was it assumed that people would have a garden, um, but also that they would have access to parks. Um, and the idea of like the fact that people need space both for, for exercise and leisure, and it's a hugely important part of both physical and mental health, being able to get out of the place where where you live. Um, It seemed to be assumed that everyone would be able to do that on an individualist basis. So everyone would have a garden where they could could do that, Um, completely ignoring the amount of people that are shoved into, um, yeah, tower blocks, houses of of multiple occupation, um, which is a huge issue in cities. And the way that that also, um, that exacerbates racial divides, class divides, 
um, also, also age. Like again, the the idea that if you are a teenager or, or a young person who's out uh, loitering, as as we were saying before, mm-hmm. in, in public space, you become hyper visible. People assume that you are up to no good and you need to be policed or or observed in some way. So how are you meant to exercise that autonomy um, that we were expected to do under lockdown if you also feel observed constantly? Yeah. And when, you know, just from being around the discrepancies in terms of who was being approached by the police and who wasn't, you know, big groups of middle-class families sitting Mm. around didn't seem to be a problem in East Dulwich Park once when I was walking through there, you know, um, and, and who gets told to, to move on. So I think who has the right to walk or loiter without being challenged has come under, it's become, um, those inequalities have become very evident mm. under, under lockdown. And also the requirement to keep moving um, is also really difficult for if, if we think of age at the other end of the spectrum, you know, and the right to city for older people. Mm. The first lockdown rules where you weren't allowed to sit, were you? You weren't allowed to sit in the park. Yeah. You had to keep moving. So the fit, moving, exercising body was the good lockdown body in the park. Yes. And the um, elderly or um, whoever, you know, anyone, anyone who had any, any, any other kind of body who, who needed to sit down and take a rest sometimes um, is, yeah, it, it included at, at the time I had, my child was still a baby. And so, and she was just learning to walk and negotiating how we could be in the park was mm. quite difficult during the first stage of lockdown because she couldn't move in the way that you were supposed to in order to be in the park and we weren't allowed to sit down so yeah there were all of those kinds of issues as well around parks but it really annoyed me the moralizing as well of the use of parks in areas where green space um, is in high demand where you've got high concentrations of people and so there'd be all of this tut-tutting about oh what people have all of these people in the park it's like well does this not maybe tell us something about lack of green space or what's needed in certain areas um and the pushing of responsibility for spreading COVID-19 onto people who were in parks rather than anything to do with the fact that we do uh theoretically have a group of people in charge of the country Mm. who might also bear some responsibility for this but like no it's all down to irresponsible people leaving their homes and occupying their their environment yeah. Something else I've been thinking, which takes us back to gender, is about toilets and the access to yeah. toilets during mm-hmm. different lockdowns and what that does um, to different groups of people as well. Because I think now some park toilets are open, but it's a bit uneven. And also public toilets are so um, underfunded anyway, that there's a lack anyway. And I certainly rely on, you know, being able to pop into a cafe or but again, that's a privilege that I get to do that. I buy my expensive coffee and you're also allowed to have a wee. Um, but the removal of that has made planning how you move around the city mm-hmm. really difficult, even when you're, keep, you know, you're keeping within the regulations. But how long are you going to be able to be out of the house for? So mm-hmm. that affects, that the, the way that affects people is also gendered. 
Yeah, definitely. And there's, you're right, there's so much about the sort of body in all of this, isn't there? About, you know, which bodies are are more easily able to, you know, be compliant with this mm. new kind of outdoor, these new outdoor rules. Should we think about the space that the city occupies itself, like in in culture and in how we think about uh, maybe politics and society as well, like as, as well as how we think of ourselves within the city? Um, so a lot of my favourite um, books and, and songs actually are all kind of based around um, the city. Like and I know Ellie um, Petula Clark, Downtown, is a, is a sort of emblematic song of the the promise and, and the, the comfort sometimes that the city can offer, particularly to, to single women. Um, yeah, I've, I've got lots of um, examples that I could bring up, particularly, and they kind of are all London-based because I'm someone who's had a, a very close and rocky relationship with London. I think it's like the most intense uh, love affair I've ever had has been with um, the city that I know live in. Um, and there's, like London obviously occupies a, a huge amount of... Um, cultural and political importance and there's um I, I, I sometimes think about when what what drew me to London and part of it was this sort of like romantic ideal because I'd read a lot about women who move to London and self-actualize and discover independence and autonomy and agency <coughs> that they couldn't do in um their small towns so th- I think there's also something for me though about where power and opportunity is is presumed to lie like when I was moving to London I very much wanted to become um, actively involved with politics I wanted to change the world etc etc and that was what what drew me to London because it's the seat of political power Mm -hmm. Um, plus the possibility I think of uh, being able to try out new identities to to explore different aspects of of myself um, reinvent myself in some ways and I think it's much easier to do that in the city due to its its anonymity, the, the, the multitudes that it contains and the transient nature of um, many aspects of life in a city. So all of that um, was wrapped up in London for me. And I don't know if that applies to other, other cities as well. I think like it probably does. I'm sure it does. And there's, um, I'm thinking of the cultural theorist, Elizabeth Wilson. She uh, wrote this great book in the nineties called Sphinx or is it Sphinx and the City or Sphinx in the City? I always get it mixed up because of sex in the city. Um, (laughs) But it's brilliant. And she uses different examples of uh, cities throughout the ages and women's relationship with their cities. And one of her central arguments is, although she's argued a bit against this idea of, well, the the woman can't be a flanoose, 
um, because she said, you know, the city has always held exactly that attraction for women that you just described, Rianne, that um, there, has, there is, has been a pull from, um, for anonymity and for, you know, a, a different kind of life for women in the city and, you know, the potential to, to make more money than in other places, which again mm-hmm. has been another pull from, you know, when industrialization was happen- happening, women coming to the city where they could earn more um, than in the countryside. So there has been this historic pull towards the city. Very much so. And also the, um, the the amount of women who came to the city, I think this is sort of early 19th century, um, increased uh, the, the spending power that Western European economies had mm-hmm. um, in general. And so many of these women um, w- were sort of career oriented, but making independent living was more important mm-hmm. than marrying a man who, who could support them. Mm-hmm. So this, yeah, the whole idea of urban independence mm-hmm. and women in the city is, is something that's all intertwined for me it's just something that's just popped into my head is um I teach at at goldsmiths and I do lots of walking with students around the area and I read this story about in a local uh history book about the Deptford gut girls who there was an abattoir in Deptford and but and it was quite uh hard work quite smelly work so the women who worked there um gutting the animals got paid really well so the Deptford gut girls were known for having really great hats and really amazing dresses and, and just having yeah having a final having a final time well probably not having a final time but having some really good hats anyway uh, because they got paid good wages for this kind of work so you know the city has held this kind of promise for Pete for women that yeah. reminds me actually of a story that came up in one of the um <clears throat> interviews I was doing for my research my PhD research about women's memories of life during the Troubles and um, a woman who I interviewed, <clears throat> excuse me, was talking about her, about growing up in Derry. And obviously, you know, there's lots, of, there's very dominant narratives that we all have about, the, you know, Belfast and Derry and other places in the North of Ireland about conflict and um, violence and militarism and all of those things but she talked she had this wonderful memory of um, there were there were a lot of shirt factories in, in Derry it was a very important part of the industry in Derry and they closed I think they were open until the, the 90s um, some of these places and she had memories of on that they had early they, they would finish early on Fridays and she would go into town and Derry on a Friday afternoon was just full of women spending their wages like having fancy lunches, you know, going into the bars, probably, you know, wearing brilliantly, like beautifully tailored clothes. And and I just loved that story because, you know, thinking specifically about the example of, of Northern Ireland, it's, um, it's something that you don't hear about very much. It's it, it, the, the narratives are so dominated by violence, but, and, and, you know, male activity. So it was just so great to hear this story of, of, of women's agency in the in that mm. urban space, I think a lot of women, um, having come to the city and got jobs here, were also, also became active in um, unionising as well. So there's that the, the city can give women power as as consumers, I guess, or, or social power, but gives them um, political power in a lot of ways as well. Um, yeah, I think there's this paradox in writing and thinking and talking about women and the city between you know 
often then the ensuing moral panics about something like the Deptford Gut Girls, which there was, there were loads of moralizers and Victorian reformers hanging around Deptford. Um, so there's this intense surveillance of and women's presence in the city being seen to be something that was a problem. Hazel Carby writes about this um, a lot in her work on the policing of black women's um, bodies in the early, early 20th century uh, North American cities. So that there can be these places of intense surveillance but also with these spaces of freedom or practices of freedom at the same time so I think these things often go closely come closely packaged together really. Mm. Um, Emma you talked a little bit about the walking the sort of walking that you do with your students Mm. firstly are you still able to do that at the moment or is that sort of having to? No I had to cancel I was so gutted I rewrote this course I, I teach a course called London which is taught almost entirely through walks in different parts of the city. And I rewrote it when the pandemic happened to then concentrate only walks that were adjacent to Goldsmiths. And then in the end, we just had to pull it because it just wasn't going to be safe. Um, I managed in the in-between times, as I've come to talk about the sort of strange times between lockdowns where some things, we did, I did some small group walks with students, socially distanced and in small groups. Um, but I've had to curtail a lot of that this year, which has been a real shame. Yeah, that is a real shame. That sounds great. Um, could you talk a little bit about that work and also how that kind of uh, connects with your current thinking about, like I know you've you've been writing about the figure of the Flanese and, and the kind of politics of, of that figure. Yeah, I, my writing about it has come out of my teaching, both teaching about gender the body in the city and walking um and also the practice of teaching through walking in the city um and I think what pushed me towards writing the piece I've written a chapter of a book recently on thinking rethinking the flannels. One day, I think I was scoping a walk for some students in central London and my tights were falling down. And I had a little idle thought of, oh, you never read about somebody, the problem of being a flannels and tights falling down. And that for me, that's an ever, that's an ever present problem when walking in the city. And I was thinking about, I was thinking about the classic text on walking in the city and some of the things that you already so well drew out with the beginning about the figure of the flaneur, um, no discussion of his tights falling down. And then a lot of the discussion of the possibility of the flaneurs always seems to turn to Virginia Woolf as a starting point. And great, I like Virginia Woolf too. Um, but then I was thinking, okay, what happens if we start with contemporary kinds of flanusery um what kind of walking traditions and practices could we draw if instead of centering Virginia Woolf we center um the films of Agnes Varda or I draw on the writing of one of my colleagues Nomal Pua who um is based at Goldsmiths or um Morag Rose who coordinates the Loitra's resistance movement in Manchester you know these kinds of women who um talk about how walking and gender interplay with disability or with race or different kinds of histories and I think there's such a rich potential body of work on women walking in the city 
that um, gets left by the wayside. So I've just been trying to join up mm-hmm. some of the work that's already there. I don't think my own contribution isn't that great. It's more trying to bring bring things together and consolidate and think about other starting points of thinking about women walking in the city. Um, I used to think about this stuff a lot when I was living in London and I was working as a as a community education teacher in um, Islington and I, I was peripatetic so I was teaching in children's centres and community and libraries and so I was would have to sort of a lot of walking so I got to know the borough the London borough of Islington at the back of my hand and um, I used to think about this stuff so much um, in terms of myself but also my students so I taught mainly ESOL so I was mainly working with migrant and migrants and mainly women as well of many of whom had children um, uh, some of whom had kind of quite um, limited literacy skills and some of whom had physical you know had had physical health issues and there was so much to take into consideration in terms of where the classes took place about access so of course childcare, but also like constant roadworks happening. I used to think about this all the time, like walking up and down Holloway Road or whatever, and thinking about how where a sort of pedestrian crossing suddenly moves because mm-hmm. there's sort of works happening there, and how for me as you know able-bodied, relatively kind of healthy person, I didn't have, I wasn't pushing a buggy. You know that was quite easy for me to adapt to, but for for my students that would be really difficult. Also signs street signs um you know so obviously if English isn't your first language those things can be you know things that we take for granted about bus announcements I remember one of my students once asking me what what Jew meant but because they'd seen it on the um on the display at the bus stop uh and I had to explain what that meant and but also if you you know if you find reading difficult anyway there's so much you know that you take that, that in the sort of cityscape that that can be taken for granted um yeah it just made me think it gave me this really kind of like strong sense of the city that I hadn't had before that work yeah um who how the city is made legible to people um and who can negotiate it and move around it um, just thinking about there's this project it's you can find it online called v, the VI Mobilities Project and it's about young people who are visually impaired negotiating the transport system in London and it's really interesting in terms of showing you what it's like to negotiate the transport system um, if you're visually impaired mm. it's really really powerful to, to watch and think with um, on a lesser scale I always used to think um when I was on maternity leave, bin day being a nightmare for accessibility. Like with a buggy, you can just about do the slalom, but if you're a wheelchair user, it would be an absolute disaster because the the pavements just become completely uh, inaccessible. So there are things like that that would just never would have occurred to me before that when you're seeing it from another person's perspective or your own experiences change, Mm. um, you suddenly get a different view on who gets to move about easily or not. This whole discussion has made me think, because there, there was like a um, 
a talking point that I think we were going to bring up is where are women in uh, urban planning Mm. um and and building cities like are are cities built with women in mind and if not does this account for how how women experience the city but yeah throughout this discussion I was thinking well no it's not simply women is it that the the design and the layout uh, and the operation of cities um is limited in all kinds of ways and it's, it's difficult to think of um who is the ideal citizen that a city is designed for who would have no problems moving around it and negotiating it and and feeling safe and um yeah there probably isn't one um the city is is hostile to all of its inhabitants and welcoming to its inhabitants in various ways and yeah in different ways you can be excluded sometimes and included sometimes but i do think in the same way as there's an imagined family at the heart of lockdown policy i think there's an imagined citizen um of the unencumbered man Mm. white man going about his his business i still think is probably the citizen who has who the city is most legible and uh designed for i'm imagining him as will self <laughs> Let's call him will. <laughs> oh dear um do we want to we were thinking about maybe discussing our favorite cultural representations mm-hmm. of city rian you sort of touched a little bit on that earlier um uh obviously there are kind of emma you mentioned you've already mentioned sex and sex in the city briefly in passing that that became quite a kind of um uh, what's the word it became a common reference point anyway with um kind of in representations of women in the city um in kind of popular representations of women in the city um i feel like it's 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 defensible as a as a representation on its own terms, despite its huge. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's appallingly uh, white, appallingly not even middle class. Like the the amount of um, financial and class privilege that just goes completely undiscussed. But I mean, I think it's possible to appreciate it as a an escapist fantasy, um, as I did growing up. And and it does. I think it does say something about the relationship women can have with a particular urban milieu and the way that you're your friendships and your relationships can also be bound up with the mm. city. Like that's certainly something that's, um, that's true of me. And I, I think of yourself, Ali, as well. The idea that the city is also, your, your memories are inscribed onto the city. Like so many important um, points in my life are associated with particular locations. Um, sometimes just like the view that I had while I was having some kind of revelation or, um, or something is, um, yeah, all of that inscribed on the city. I think is uh... of uh, women's friendships I think was important and different at the time mm. but I have to say I had a low point um a few years ago where I was had to recuperate and I, I was spending I decided to re-watch Sex and the City um and the yeah Donald Trump I think is in the first episode yes yes he is <laughs> then, first when Mr Big is introduced he's, he's um Samantha said he's the new Donald Trump (laughs) in terms of how that's aged and how it's tied up with a certain version of New York um yeah that it hasn't aged some of that hasn't Mm. aged very well absolutely I I love it there's one thing that I yeah like you've already summed up the, the the issues with it but um I think there's one episode and it kind of ends I think she's broken up like Carrie has broken up broken off one of her relationships and it kind of 
she's having this moment of reflection at the end and she kind of ends thinking, oh, actually my real love is New York, the city. And I actually, and I remember thinking that was really, really powerful because I, there were, you know, there were times when I lived in London where I did feel like I was in a relationship with the city. I was deeply in love with it and leaving it, it did feel like a breakup. I mean, it, and it coincided with an actual relationship breakup, which also shaped then how I felt about the city after that. So, um, yeah, like that that sense of, of being in love with the city, I, I found, I always found quite, quite affecting. One of the best, um, again, I, I guess a, a slightly different cultural representation is um, the Alana Ferrante novels um, and the relationship that both of the, the female protagonists have with Naples. And I, I think it's it's very interesting that, and I, I knew absolutely well, just the, the bare minimum about like Italian history or geography um, when I read that quartet. But I think Naples was an interesting choice because it is, that's very working class, like it, it's sort of regarded as as being kind of down at heel and slightly disreputable. And I think that that comes into play when um, Lenu like, goes to, to Milan and to Rome and people treat her differently because mm. um, she's from Naples. But just the, the geography and the community within that city, I thought, was brilliantly uh, rendered and represented. And also the way that the boundaries within the city are portrayed in that book. Um, in the first in the first book I'm thinking of in, in particularly when they're so bound to the neighborhood that intense relationship with the neighborhood and the rest of the city seeing seeming so far away and I think there I'm sure there are elements of that that are quite specific to that moment in Naples but that's also the experience of some people in the city mm. um that you know growing up in one part of London the idea of the West End seems really far away and weird and not something where you can just go and have a lovely time and mm. um, explore the explore the city and there's when they go into Naples as a group for the first time um, it's yes. so brilliant in terms of its depiction of boundaries and class in the city um, I, yeah I think it's absolutely brilliant portrayal of 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 the city and, and women's relationship with the city. Mm. Mm. Another favourite of mine, which I only thought of yesterday, actually, when I was thinking about preparing for this today, um, is Tipping the Velvet by Sarah Waters. I don't know if mm. you guys have read that, but I just think that's, it's, it says, it's such a London novel and it says a lot. It's kind of, there's various things going on about that. And I, I think it kind of talks about the way the, the, it's a kind of description of gender shape-shifting, partly because the main character kind of adopts this persona of, as, a, as a male sex worker, and that enables her to occupy and move around the streets in a certain way. But it's also a really powerful, like really moving um, portrayal of 
what heartbreak can do to your sense of the city as well. And I'm really interested. I'm, I kind of I'm writing about it quite a lot at the moment. The way that your relationship with place can change quite suddenly by you know by sometimes it's a very personal thing. Obviously, mm -hmm. at the moment we're all dealing with this very um, uh, public political um, moment in history. Um, but yeah, tipping the velvet, she when she is kind of heartbroken, it totally changes her relationship with the city and she doesn't, she can't go to certain places the way that she once would have been able to. So it's just another example of how these things are movable. I was thinking as well, because um, we talked about sex in the city and that's probably as well speaks to our generation, you know. Um, but I think some more recent portrayals of women in the city as well. I was thinking about Broad City, which I mean, they're similarly obnoxious in a way. Seen, but they're these two best friends who were very like, it's all a, their friendship is the thing that carries this. It's really silly. Um, but it's they dash about New York getting up to all kinds of exploits and it's centered on them. Um, again, upper middle class, white young people but quite different to to sex in the city and um, i was thinking about insecure as well have you seen insecure no. uh, which is set in los angeles it has isa ray uh, the actor in the, the main role and it's a very different portrayal of the city because it's los angeles so there's a lot of driving um but that that centers the relationship between her and her best friend as well so i think there are other contemporary TV shows. I struggle more to think of film, actually. I think maybe TV does women in the city better mm. than film. I mean, I'm a big fan of um, the French director Ag Agnes Varda's films and her um, Clio 5 to 7 is like one of the archetypal mm. women in the city films that is absolutely brilliant, um, showing how she wanders the city, but also shows how she's looked at in the city and how through being in the city, it changes her as a person. So I think that... Mm. That's a really interesting film, but you know that's from the nineteen sixties. Um, I was thinking about a film I saw recently. Have you seen this film, Rocks? Yes, about yes, yes. Of young women um, in East London, um, and the central story is about the protagonist and her mum, um, and her her mum disappears and she has to cope on her own, and they are um, seeing the city through the eyes of working class teenage girls, is it gives a really different view in terms of the city experience. And they are people whose experience of the city is massively constrained in all kinds of ways, but there are some moments of great joy. Like there's this wonderful scene when they're all on the top of a block of flats dancing. Yes, yes. It's beautiful. And again, that's not a representation you see very much of an experience of the city, but in terms of centering girlhood um in films about the city i thought that was really great and again female friendship being absolutely key i was thinking about that actually this morning in relation to because we, we we were talking about girlhood on another episode the other day and that was something that, that i'd forgotten about but yeah i went to see that in the cinema in the in the between times actually yeah. <laughs> um god cinema I just remembered a, there's a french film which i think is actually called girlhood and i uh i can't remember the director um but it was out a few years ago and it's it's very it sounds very similar to this but it's set in uh, the the banlieue the the estates on the outskirts um of paris and again is about young um so like uh, moroccan french um girls and how they 
yeah, just their, their friendship dynamics, how they try to escape it through associating with um, older men, um, slightly men who have, have a bit more money, that kind of thing. There's also a brilliant scene where I think they uh, shoplift loads of stuff and go, go to a hotel room and just put on all their all their finery and dress up and sing. Um, it's a Rihanna song, I think, Shine Bright Like a Diamond, mm-hmm. um, which, yeah, is, is just be- beautiful portrait of, of um, teenage girls. Mm-hmm. It's really nice that we've just been talking about joy and pleasure and fun, you know, in the last, like, um, my, you know, that's that's kind of dominated most of what we've been discussing, obviously, 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 we've been talking about power and the obstacles as well that we face and the way that the cities are designed for certain people. Um, because obviously, we that the considerations of safety and who has you know who is safe on the streets have been very present in our discussions of the city at the moment. Um, but it is a reminder to think about other ways of claiming space as women as well. Yeah, it's something, um, I mean, one of the first things I, I thought about when I was thinking about what does the city mean to me is that when I moved here from the valleys, everyone was was terribly, well, there, there were two things. First of all, everyone was terribly concerned that I would be murdered immediately um, or that I was going to, you know, meet the Queen on my, fir- my first day here, etc. And they, they were equally unrealistic ideas of... Um, what the city meant but yeah I mean I mean throughout history there's there's been the um as Emma you were saying that the sort of trope of, of the country girl uh mm. moving to the city and the the danger particularly like the sort of the moral danger t- to her that that presents but also the the opportunities that it offers so yeah the, the city of course presents dangers particularly to women but then so does the domestic space like so do parents so does marriage um that that's part of being a, being a woman in this world and for me, the city has offered a whole range of opportunities that those other spaces don't. Yeah, and I, I think these, it, it is really important to join up those things, I think, and not think of the domestic and the outside as being so separate. And it's really important to, you know, constantly restate that, that you know, the domestic is historically more, much more of a, a risky space for women. Um but to think about, okay, you know, what kinds of gender politics, types of male violence that cut across um, across those kinds of spaces, um, I think it's. I think we need to join up those and be, you know, be think about the rise in domestic violence that's happened under lockdown alongside these terrible, terrible um, other crimes that have happened in in public spaces. Yeah, I mean, there's been some really important discussions about how, obviously, the domestic space, the home, is was kind of posited as the safe space mm-hmm. because outside is where you might catch COVID or spread COVID or whatever. Like, outside is is the space of risk. And lots of people in the queer community and, yeah, like, feminists talking about domestic violence and all of those things have pointed out that the home is a is a really risky space for people and anyway the home does not mean that the family is not necessarily a safe space you know if you're a queer teenager for example or you know if you're a woman in an abusive relationship the home is not the the uh the haven the safe haven Mm -hmm. i think it's um i mean 
the way that the combination of this awful, horrific murder, um, the combination of that and the fear that comes with that and the lockdown conditions, which mean many women have been more compact <coughs> in their homes than they normally would be. I do worry about the what comes next in terms of the life, the public life of the city and women. And I, I think um, there's going to have to be a lot of space, space claiming when we get out of this and demanding, uh, making our demands um, of, of the city very publicly and politically. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the watching the um, the policing of the of the vigil, um, how that was um, appallingly dealt with, and, and some of the the response to it as well, which did seem to centre on uh, anxieties about large groups of women gathering in in public, you know, and so, so to, you have to I think you have to think about also like how how is public life policed how how mm. how what what shapes what what forces shape um the police for example or what forces shape the the home office yeah and also just making clear that when we campaign for women's safety in public we're not talking about police in nightclubs or more cctv cameras we're talking about a remaking of public space and gender relations mm-hmm. that cannot be designed out in that way although you know I'm, I'm sure there's ways we can make cities more friendly spaces to women sometimes the way that's policed is by the exclusion of other groups it becomes then and un- the figure of the unsafe middle-class white woman becomes the figure mm. which then justifies the exclusion of other groups and actually and um, the authors of why loiter are brilliant on that in the writing about that in the indian city mm-hmm. and how um the centering of that worries about safety of higher caste, higher class women becomes a means of the exclusion of different um, different groups, including sex workers and lower mm. caste men. So I think there's lots of lessons we can learn from that writing as well about how we make demands for safer public space. And I think their idea of centering fun is is absolutely a great idea. Very mm. important, definitely. Well, that feels like a good note to tile the uh, to, to tile this up and. <laughs> um, so thanks, Emma, for joining. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, it's been re- a really rich, wide-ranging discussion, and lots yeah, of and great stuff. Take out into the world post lockdown. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help, I know. Downtown, just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose the light so much brighter there? Can't forget all your troubles, forget all your cares, so go downtown. Things will be great when you're downtown. No final place for sure. Downtown, everything's waiting for you. Downtown. 
Your problems surround you. There are movie shows downtown. Maybe you know some little places to go to where they never close downtown. Just listen to the rhythm of the Genovese. You'll be dancing with them too before the night is over. Happy again. The lights so much brighter there. You can't forget all your troubles, forget all your cares. So go downtown. Where all the lights are right down.